Thank you, Travis. Please turn now to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Ephesians 2, chapter, verses 1 through 7. Beginning in verse 1, Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the mind and the body, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is God's holy word. Let us pray. Almighty Father, you have given us your holy word for teaching and for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness that we might be equipped for every good work. We ask that you would pour out your spirit upon us now. Pour out on us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation that we may hear and understand and receive your word with true faith and obedience to the glory of your grace to us and our Savior. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, not in the Eddie Murphy version, but in the original movie version of Dr. Doolittle, Dr. Doolittle sings what it would be like if we could talk to the animals. So bear with me for just a few minutes and imagine that you can talk to the caterpillars and to the butterflies. And one fall day you see a caterpillar crawling about on the ground and you feel this caterpillar is a most unfortunate little creature because it takes an awful lot of work to coordinate the movements of all those little legs. And it must be a continual frustration to try and keep clean, crawling about in the dirt all the time. But more importantly, crawling about slowly on the ground makes one vulnerable to hungry, swift, moving predators like birds. And so, All of it makes you wonder, you know, wouldn't it just be better if the little caterpillar could just fly away? 
So you talk to the caterpillar, and you share your concerns with your little friend, and you try and reason with him, and you encourage him simply to fly away. But your little caterpillar furrows his little caterpillar eyebrows at you, and he gives you a puzzled look, an impatient look. He can't conceive in his little caterpillar mind what flying would be like, and he has no desire to fly in his little caterpillar heart. So despite the challenges that go with crawling about on the ground, he tells you he's quite content to do so. Thank you. He has the nature, he has the mind, he has the heart of a caterpillar. That is his life. But later that fall... Your little caterpillar friend climbs a tree and he weaves a cocoon and within the cocoon he undergoes a remarkable transformation. He undergoes a new birth of sorts. He becomes a new creature now so that in the spring that caterpillar is raised from the tomb of his cocoon to new life now as a butterfly. And so one spring day, you see your little friend again, only no longer as a caterpillar on the ground, but now as a butterfly, alighted on a tree limb. And, and you see how all those short little legs have been exchanged for six slender legs. And you see how his plump body has been exchanged for a trim aerodynamic body. And you also see how that body has sprouted the most marvelous, beautiful pair of wings. So this time when you encourage your little friend to fly, he smiles at you with a big grin because you see it is butterfly mind and heart. There's nothing he would rather do. It is his nature now to fly. And so he flutters those beautiful silky wings and he flits about to the glory of God with new life. Only God, our creator, can raise a bug from the dirt as a caterpillar to the sky as a butterfly. And only God, our Savior, can raise us up from death in sin to new life in Christ. When you and I were dead in our trespasses and sins, it was our nature, it was our heart to walk according to the course of this world and the prince of the power of the air, to live in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the mind and the body. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our sins, made us alive together with Christ, and he raised us up with Christ, and he seated us with Christ so that we might now live no longer for ourselves, but for the glory of God. It is our new God-given nature to do so. In Christ, we are more than conquerors now over the powers of the world and the flesh and the devil which oppose us continually. And in this passage, Paul paints this wonderful, vivid contrast between 
what we are by nature and what God has now made us according to His grace in Christ. These words, but God, are two of the most wonderful, two of the most hopeful words that we have in the entire Scripture. If God is for us according to His unmerited mercy and love and grace and kindness, then nothing can successfully oppose our new life and our fellowship with God, which we have as His gift in Christ. Now let's examine this contrast that Paul presents to us. First, dead in sin. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, Paul writes. He's describing what the Ephesian Christians were before they were in Christ. They had been physically alive, they had breathed, they had walked, they had interacted with others, but they had in fact been spiritually dead. And this is the condition of everyone. Apart from Christ, Paul's not describing some decadent kind of paganism. He is not describing some really corrupt segment of society. He is describing fallen man in fallen society everywhere and at all times. And when you think about it a bit, you realize that there may be all the difference in the world between how I perceive reality and how reality truly is. You know how this goes. You take your car for a routine inspection and you're asked, how is the car operating? You say, fine. You know, no knocks, no rattles, good gas mileage. And after the evaluation, the service technician talks to you and he says, have you noticed the wear on your tires? The tread is getting a little bit thin. You need to replace those tires. And he says also, you know, you have this many miles on your car. Toyota recommends a radiator flush, or you can expect this kind of problem eventually. Also, he says, you know, you need to have your transmission fluid changed so you don't encounter this kind of problem. And so very quickly, we realize that there is this contrast that may exist between your perception of reality and reality as it truly is. Ignorance can be such bliss. And the same can be true of our spiritual state. No one who is spiritually dead thinks of himself or herself as dead to God. I mean, after all, I have this God awareness. I believe in the existence of God. I live a moral life. I'm a religious person. I may not be perfect, but at least I'm above average. But don't we know that self-deception is a basic human trait? You see, it's possible to deceive yourself about the condition of your car, and it's possible to deceive yourself about the condition of your soul. A skilled mortician can make a body lying in a casket look like it has a lifelike appearance. I mean, you see the familiar pose, the same familiar haircut and clothing and jewelry. But no life is present in that body because for all of its like-like appearance, it's dead. 
And the same is true for those who live apart from Christ. They are spiritually dead. Dead in trespasses and sins, Paul says in verse 1. These two words, trespasses and sins, they are carefully chosen. These two words, trespasses and sins, they present a complete picture of life apart from God. Trespass means to step out of the proper path. Trespass means to step out of bounds. Sin means to fall short of the proper standard, to fall short of the target, and so taken together, trespasses and sins are the two sides of the same coin of human wrongdoing. We might say they are the positive and they are the negative aspects of wrongdoing. Apart from Christ, people are both rebels and they are failures in their relation to God. Rebels because we have trespassed and failures because we have fallen short. But Paul doesn't stop there. In verses 2 and 3, he uses two additional words, walk and live, to describe those who are actually spiritually dead. And I think that's kind of catchy. Dead men walking, dead men living. Paul is a very effective communicator, and this is his deadly point, spiritually Dead men walk and spiritually dead men live in bondage. They do not enjoy the life and the freedom of the children of God. Apart from Christ, apart from Christ, we walk in bondage. We walk in bondage. We are enslaved. Yes, we are enslaved to our trespasses and sins, but Paul doesn't stop there. He also says we are enslaved to this world's order. We are enslaved to following the course of this world, following society at large, as it is organized without reference to God. What we might say as secularism in opposition to the kingdom of God. The word world describes this social and this moral value system which is alien to God, a system which permeates and and dominates non-Christian society and holds people captive. A system that conforms people to its likeness. And I can hear the objection, are you some kind of conspiracy nut? No. Instead, instead I'm talking about something far more insidious and far more sinister and far more effective than some grand humanly devised conspiracy with a central planning office. Paul is saying that unless God steps in to change things, culture is just destined to try and create a world where the knowledge of God, the true knowledge of God, is suppressed into oblivion. A city of man that is opposed to the city of God. And the influence of this world on those who don't know God is pervasive. People tend to not have a mind of their own. They simply surrender themselves to the world. They allow themselves to be distracted by the things of the world. And they walk in bondage. 
even though they believe themselves to be free, but it's even more sinister than that. Paul says also, apart from Christ, we walk in bondage to the prince of the power of the air. Paul is referring, of course, to the devil. He's called a prince because his power is superior to ours. He reigns in the air because he reigns in the realm of the spirit. And Paul says he works. He works in those who walk apart from Christ. He is the God of this world, Paul writes the Corinthians, because he has seized the place of God in those who do not know Christ. The great Augustine said that a man is like a horse and he can have only have one of two riders, either God or Satan. And Satan excels in deceit. Satan is a liar. He presents himself as an angel of light who intends your best when in fact he is a roaring lion who intends your eternal demise. Max Sennett was a movie director during the old silent movie period. Uh, that period before the advent of talking motion pictures and And Senate directed this short comedy, and the short comedy involved this situation where an escaped lion takes the place of a shaggy dog beside an armchair in which the comic is seated. And the comic affectionately runs his fingers through the lion's mane over and over and over until he realizes at the last moment he's treating as a pet, a predator that intends his destruction. And so it is for those who live apart from Christ. I mean, enslaved to the world and the devil, we indulge and coddle and treat as our friends, our sins and our trespasses, never really suspecting that they deaden us, that they distort us, and they make us less than the kind of humanity God created man originally to be. Apart from Christ, we walk in bondage. And apart from Christ, we live in the flesh. The passions of the flesh, Paul says, are the desires of the body and the desires of the mind. And I think that's very helpful because there's nothing wrong with natural bodily desires such as food or sleep or sex. God has designed our bodies that way to have those desires. John Stott says it is only when the appetite for food becomes gluttony, for sleep, sloth, for sex, lust, that natural desires have been perverted into sinful desires. But secondly, note something that else that that Paul says. He says that the passions of the flesh include not only the desires of the body, but the desires of the mind. In some sense, the desires of the mind can be more serious than the sins of the body. Sins of the mind, such as intellectual pride. You know, sometimes a little bit of knowledge can be a dangerous thing. And false ambition and rejection of truth and vengeful thoughts. Martin Luther, Martin Luther put it perfectly. Luther says that unopposed by God, Our flesh turns our hearts inward. He said the human heart in its natural state is incurvatus, in say, curved in on itself. 
It is self-absorbed, always looking inside, absorbed with self. That's what it means to live apart from God. We analyze everything in regard to how it benefits our happiness, our glory, our reputation, our comfort, our advantage, our control of things and others. And the heart turned inward can make you a very cruel person. And of course, some of the worst tyrants in history have been like that. But here's the thing. Ironically, ironically, the heart turned inward can also make you a very moral person. And the reason is because you desperately need to feel good about yourself and you desperately need others to think well and highly of you, maybe even God. So everything is about you. And there's no better way to feel good about yourself and to put others in your debt and to get control over others than being very moral. Yes, you're helping people. Maybe you're sacrificing for them. But who's it for in the end? It's not so much for them as it is for you. You see how insidiously the flesh works. And my friends, here's the kicker. Not only can self-centeredness make you a very moral person, it can make you a very religious person even a very orthodox religious person. And how is it that you know that? How do you know that you're doing that kind of thing? Here's how. When when things aren't going well, when it doesn't seem God is answering your prayers, you become embittered toward Him. Because your religion has been all about you. It's our nature to be turned in on ourselves unless God intervenes and gives us what we cannot give to ourselves, a new heart. And that's why Paul says, apart from God, we are by nature children of wrath. Wrath is God's personal constant hostility toward all that is evil. Is it possible for religious devotion to be evil in the eyes of God? Yes, it can. I mean, some of Jesus' harshest denunciations were reserved for the religious Pharisees, individuals possessing great zeal for their religion, people who made great sacrifices for their religion. In Romans chapter 10, Paul says about such people, he says, I bear them witness that they have a great zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, to the kind of knowledge gained when God intervenes and gives me a new heart and a new nature and a new desire. We said earlier there can be all the difference in the world between reality as we think it and reality as it truly is. A man I deeply loved went to the doctor for a physical and the doctor asked him, how are you feeling? Fine, I'm a bit tired and I have this cough. Well, he underwent an exam that revealed that he had a very advanced form of deadly cancer. And the exam gave him new eyes now to see correctly his condition so that he might be healed. 
When God raises us up from death and sin to new life in Christ, He gives us new eyes to see not only our bondage to being curved in on ourselves, but also to the salvation and the rescue and the freedom and the life that it ours, according to God's mercy and love and grace and kindness, dead in sin and alive in Christ. But God... But God made us alive together with Christ, Paul says. Every Christian can say, once I was dead in my trespasses and sins, in which I walked and which I lived, but God. But God did for me what I couldn't do for myself. In John Newton's immortal words, I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. But God regenerated us when we were dead. The same voice of God that brought Lazarus out of the tomb raised us up to newness of life in Christ. Oh, consider what God has done. Consider what God has done. In a word, God saved us. He saved us. You were not simply sick. You were not simply weak. You were spiritually dead. When the Spirit of Christ illumined our minds to our danger in our unhappiness, I don't know, and then using some means such as scripture or a sermon or conversation with a Christian friend, oh, the Lord uses a multitude of means. You sense the Spirit of Christ speaking to your heart. It was as if you heard the voice of Christ speaking in your heart, come to me. Come to me, you heavy laden one. Come to me for rest. Come to me for peace. Come to me for life. Come to me for forgiveness and power. And feeling very free, you came to him obediently. You see, in that way, God makes us alive and raises us up with Christ and seats us with Christ in the heavenly places. Yes, God made Christ alive after he was dead and God raised him up and God seated him in the heavenlies. But here's the amazing thing. Here's the amazing thing. Paul is not simply writing about what God did for Christ here. Instead, he's stating what God has done for us in Christ. God raised us up with Christ. God exalted us in heaven with his favor and delight in Christ. God has seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. As Christ is now seated in triumph above all rule and authority and power, so, as Paul writes in Romans, we are more than conquerors in him. You see? And consider why God has done this. What motivated God to intervene on our behalf? Not something in us, but something in God. In verses 4, 5, and 7, Paul just 
piles up the words so that we get the point. He says the origin of God's intervention was God's mercy and God's love and God's grace and God's kindness. And toward what end? Verse 7 says, so that God might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness to us throughout all eternity. I mean, doesn't it just take your breath away? Isn't it wonderful to be a Christian? When we were dead in sin, we were more guilty and enslaved than we ever dared to believe, weren't we? But now in Christ, we are alive in Christ and we are more forgiven and we are more liberated than we ever dared to imagine. I read of a Scottish woman who lived in squalor in the basement of her very large house. And then shortly after George Matheson arrived as the preacher in her church, She started living now in a well-kept bedroom up on the third floor. And a man who knew her very well asked why. And I won't try and imitate her Scottish brogue. But she said, I, I, you cannot hear George Matheson preach and live in a cellar. And the same is true of Paul's teaching here. You see, are you living in the cellar spiritually? Or are you living in the choice rooms God has provided for you in Christ? Oh, my friends, may God enable all of us, all of us to rest in Christ's death as the satisfaction that God himself made for his wrath which had been against us. And having Christ as our God-given substitute who died for our sins, we have peace with God. We are reconciled to God. We rejoice in God. And may God enable us all to rest in Christ's resurrection and exaltation and session in glory as our triumph over the powers of the world and the flesh and the devil which oppose us unceasingly. We are more than conquerors in Christ. We have this as our sure hope according to God's mercy and love and grace and kindness. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty Father, we're so grateful that you saw us dead in our trespasses and sins, in which we once walked and lived, But you showed us your grace, you showed us your your kindness, your mercy, and your love. You loved us, even though we were unlovely to you. It's your nature to love that which is unlovely. And you called us to faith in Jesus. You called us to Christ. Come, you weary and heavy laden. Come to me and rest. And you enabled us to rest in the wounds of Christ for our sins. And you have enabled us to rest in his resurrection and exaltation in session 
as our triumph now over all these powers that oppose us, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Lord, these things are wonderful. They make our hearts praise you and sing alleluia to the Lord. Father, we thank you. And we would pray that you would help us walk in this world no longer as the person that we once were when we were united to Father Adam. But now as a new creation we are because we are united to Christ. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.